is Knowing God with Heart and Mind, our regular visit to the virtual church Sunday school classroom at Shiloh United Methodist Church. And it doesn't even have to be Sunday. In fact, today we're recording this on a Monday. This recording's being made on July 15th, 2019, and this is episode 15 of the book study of Mere Christianity. Today we are starting on book three, chapter four of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, affectionately known to us as Jack, because that's what he wanted everybody to call him anyway. So here we go, Bethany. We are ready to start on episode 14. It's uh, been a long journey and I don't know how far we are in the book but I don't think we're halfway yet are we I think we're getting close we're close to halfway okay well that's good oh maybe it would help if I turned your microphone up <laughs> look at that there you are I'm here yeah the last thing I recorded was our our Shiloh newsletter mm. so I turned your mic down so that it would just be the one I was using but yeah, so we're, what'd you say? We're. I think we're getting close to halfway. Getting close to halfway. My All book right. has like, I don't know, 226 pages, and we're on page 88. Okay. All so right. we're getting there. Well, so this, um, uh, this stuff is really interesting. I It made its way into the uh, sermon last week. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, we were just reading... The Revised Common Lectionary, which means that we got a reading from the schedule of readings called the Lectionary, and it happened to be uh, the Gospel of Luke and Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan, and I, I don't know how I would have handled it differently. I've preached on that one before, and in almost 25 years, I've probably visited that topic a few times, mm -hmm. but, but I sure did take a different approach to it half after listening and reading uh, mere Christianity. I mean, you know, Jesus was confronted with someone who was trying to test him, and he ended up putting them to the test by saying, basically, you know, your moral Christianity, or in, in, I should say moral Judaism, you know, in the story of the, of the Good Samaritan, it starts with a guy saying to Jesus, you know, uh, how do I have eternal life? And, and Jesus says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Or actually, he commended the guy for saying that he thought that was probably the best way to attain, attain eternal life. And, and then the guy thought he'd tricked Jesus and said, well, so what's, he, what's my neighbor? You know, who's my neighbor? And, and that's when Jesus tells the whole story of the Good Samaritan. And, and what I realized was is that two-thirds of my sermon became basically a treatment of C.S. Lewis's understanding of the difference between uh, social morality and and uh, and then you know the whole Christian morality mm -hmm. so anyway that's not news to you you were there but <laughs> what's what's really interesting to me is um, that the very next chapter takes on another aspect of morality mm -hmm. and it's chapter four is morality and psychoanalysis mm -hmm. um you are by training and 
your particular interest, very well educated in psychology. I was um, a little nervous when I saw the title of this chapter. And and without before we get into the questions, I'm just curious if you're if you have picked up on the fact that he's not a big fan of Freud. Well, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> And he makes a very good point. There's a big difference between Freudian psychoanalysis and Freud's personal philosophy. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm totally with him as far as that's concerned. Freud himself was a flawed person. Yep. Um, just like all of us. Yep. But I don't totally agree with the things that he was into. Yeah, yeah. Um, and really, psychoanalysis as a... Freudian psychoanalysis as a psychological therapeutic method mm-hmm. is not my jam. So, but I was a little nervous. I thought, ooh, what's he going to do? But, you know, he didn't fail me. Jack, I mean. Right, right. Jack didn't fail. Well, and and honestly, you know, there there's a theologian named Jack, and there's a uh, psychologist named Sigmund um, the theologian is not new at this game and he isn't creating a new method mm-hmm. the psychologist on the other hand is sort of inventing his own science I don't know what kind that, of yeah you know he's the father of modern wow. psychoanalysis yes of psychoanalysis, not of psychology. I know. They were good, awesome people who came before. I know that. But, uh, well, anyway, this might seem like it's not having a whole lot to do with our topic. And, and, and yeah. <laughs> we're setting it up. We're kind of setting the stage here. So, so basically, you know, this chapter, I mean, they all dovetail together. It's just that we're taking them roughly a week at a time. And, and um, it, it's interesting because... Um, you know, the last thing he says in, in chapter three is basically that we don't really change society by being uh, political. Mm-hmm. You know, what he says is, is that we we change society by being Christian, you know. And if we really want a Christian society, it's going to require a lot of people to be Christian. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, you know, so that's basically the, um, the uh, premise in the last chapter. And it picks up here where he basically says that, you know, um, Christian morality claims to be a technique for putting the human machine mm-hmm. right. But it, we should understand how it is related to, related to psychoanalysis, which yeah. claims to do the same thing. So. Yeah. So, he, I mean, I think he's just kind of systematically tackling arguments for why, like, pe- arguments people might make for why Christian morality isn't as important because there are other things that do the same thing. Right. And so he says, well, okay, psychoanalysis is one of those things that might be doing, might be doing the same thing as what we claim Christian morality is doing. Mm-hmm. But in fabulous Lewis fashion, he explains why that's not quite right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because, um, you know, he's, well, let's just go into the question. I, I was trying, <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to state this, this, uh, 
learning that I've, I've presumed here. So anyway, so when a human makes a moral choice, what two things are involved? What two kinds of the second thing are there? So, you know, what are the two things that are involved? When somebody makes a moral choice. Yeah. I mean, the act of choosing is one. Yeah. And then... And then the second part is your area of expertise. The raw material or the psychological makeup of the choice that is about feelings, impulses, that sort of thing. Yeah. And... Are those feelings in and impulses normal or Abby normal? Yeah. I'm, I apologize to all the Abbies out there. If you have ever watched <laughs> Young Frankenstein, then you know where I got that joke yes. and can't resist using it. So, yeah, I, so the first thing that, that uh, the first thing that C.S. Lewis Jack says is that, you know, there are basically two parts to the decision to do, you know, to, good evil or whatever and one of them is the choice that you make and then the second part is on what basis you are, your uh, decision is informed mm -hmm. and your decision could be informed by normal impulses and feelings or they can be informed by abnormal impulses yeah so um, the <laughs> I'm trying to think of it I felt attacked because he said it's normal to fear danger, but it's abnormal to have, like, an irrational fear of spiders. And I felt personally <laughs> attacked. Well, okay, I wouldn't say that your fear of spiders is irrational, but it's impractical. Um, when, when we're out in the backyard and a spider just sort of stumbles across your path and just keeps going on its way, I don't think there's any need to have a particular reaction. You can just say goodbye and, and go I in peace. And I don't usually have a major reaction. If you find one on your bed and your, or your person, I totally then, react. then I'd say a reaction is apropos. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know measured response is what i recommend but so anyway so he, he gives a he gives a, a sort of analysis mm -hmm. of three fellas going off to war yeah it's very cool and you know we have i don't know that we've brought it up since the very introductory um uh, uh, podcast but but you know there was that that uh, one book that I was really really impressed with so much that I've listened to it a couple of times. Yeah, the Hobbit, the, the Hobbit, the, a wardrobe the, and, a, and the Great War. Yeah, the Hobbit. Yeah, the Hobbit, Hobbit, the wardrobe, wardrobe and the war. And, a great, and the Great War. And and it basically talks about really how good. Tolkien and Lewis were both in World War one fought in world war one and, and they were in the trenches they saw the the death and everything up close but then if you listen to mere christianity you realize that that uh jack is frequently referring to world war ii and the nazis and things like that so his whole point of view on all of this is heavily informed by the evil that he's witnessed mm -hmm and the destruction and the death he's witnessed. So he gives examples like this. Like there was the example where he, well, I think we're actually heading into it right now. He, I think I'm ahead of myself right mm -hmm. now, but he, where he says, you know, if I was fighting a German in the trenches and we both killed each other and both ended up in heaven just a few minutes later, uh, I wouldn't have anything against him. 
you know, and he explains why, you know. Well, and earlier in the book he does talk about how, like, when it, when he was explaining our, um, like, how moral, the whole moral law works and, like, where it comes from in man, he talks about how, yeah. like, he, he makes an argument that's pretty awesome about how if we don't have that moral law, then we can't really be mad at the Nazis for what they did. Because yeah. we have a baseline, basically. Well, I'm not sure he would say we can't be mad at well, them for what we what they did, but but there was, we wouldn't have had justification. Right. That's that's what I mean. Unless we like, we had moral outrage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. So so whereas psychoanalysis seeks to remove the abnormal psychology, mm -hmm. the the fears and so forth. Um and then give a person better raw material mm -hmm. for their choosing morality is more concerned with acts of choice themselves then and, and and so the illustration of the three men who go off to war mm -hmm. is um the first guy has a natural fear of danger and so there's nothing wrong with him he doesn't need psychoanalysis yeah. it's pretty normal to be afraid of the danger that you're going to confront in war and so his resulting moral choice is that he becomes a brave man yeah, and he chooses. you know the very essence of courage is to do the thing that you're afraid to do and it doesn't take courage to do something that isn't frightening to you mm -hmm. and uh and and to put yourself in harm's way for a greater good is is the very essence of courage so so subject number two has an irrational fear of danger mm -hmm. and so his psychoanalysis would hopefully lead him to a uh, balanced approach to danger yeah. and, and, and no longer has an irrational fear. Mm -hmm. um, and then his moral decision is that he can do whatever he wants because well, it's a matter of duty. Yeah, what he talks about is like if you take both of these, the second and third man who have this irrational fear of danger and give them and, and submit them both to psychoanalysis they learn they practice different techniques and they both get to the point where they're pretty okay in the face of the danger they're still frightened but it's not irrational anymore they're able to do their job but then you get to the moral choice mm -hmm. which is the part that's not psychoanalysis and the second man makes the moral choice to do his duty and and go you know do what right. he was there to do but but at the same time the reverse of that is that the third man is cool now he can do it but he's like hey if i can do this i'm like yeah i'm just i'm looking out for number one yeah um so it's it still comes down to moral choice because the third man doesn't make the moral choice he makes the self-centered yeah. egotistical choice versus choosing to do his duty because he has worked through the problem. Yeah. So so both of them have had their psychological condition of fear mm -hmm. dealt with, but one makes a moral decision that's informed by something with universal value, which is duty. And the other one is informed by self-preservation. Right. And he makes this really great argument that 
that psychoanalysis is great to a point, but it can't do anything about moral choice because you can improve the raw material, but you can't change free choice that was given to us. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Which, um, as someone who practices as a counselor, as a form of therapist, I know real well that you can give them all the tools they need, but the choice is still that person's and they sometimes don't follow through. Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I am not a professional in that field, and yet I do a certain amount of, I wouldn't say counseling, but spiritual direction mm-hmm. would be a more appropriate term. But I was actually, you know, I'm also an administrative leader. I'm, I'm also, you know, um, uh, a chief executive officer of an organization that involves a number of employees and <laughs> not a small amount of money for operations and, and you know, a, and so forth. And I find that when you're trying to balance the... Um, practical parts of running a business which the church is to a degree uh, to a significant degree and also the spiritual uh, and and sort of Christian social expectations in other words you're trying to manage people who are often volunteers meaning that they're doing this because they want to and you're trying to manage them and yet you can't lord it over them or offer the kind of leadership to them that you can for employees Mm -hmm. and so there's this very delicate rope that you walk where you're trying to make take maintain leadership for the benefit of those who you lead but also for the fulfillment of the vision and the mission Mm -hmm. and the funny thing is is that you sooner or later you figure out that you can train some people and you can change some people more often than not, you're training people mm-hmm. because pe- people that need to change only change when they want to. Right. But you can train them, meaning that they can at least manage their behavior in your presence because you've created parameters for it. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about somebody the other day, and uh, you know, I said, well, look, if this person's trainable, that would be great. Uh, I don't know if they're changeable, but they can be trained. If, if they can be trained, then they will just learn that this certain behavior is always going to get a negative outcome, and then we'll be able to work well together because in that process of working well together, they'll just avoid doing the thing that causes them pain, which keeps me from having to experience pain as well. And then as a director of activities and leader, um, it helps me to assure that our purpose is being fulfilled, you know, so, so you, you can't change people. Yeah. Well, you can't change everybody, but you can condition some people, you know, and some people are very dear to us and we wish they would change, but we keep thinking that somehow they need to change what's in their heart. They need to change what motivates them and all of that. And honestly, we don't have any control over another person's ability to do that or need or or whatever. But what we can do if we're going to live with people or work with people is gently create conditions that make it tolerable for both of you and maybe even enjoyable for both of you. So this person might still have a certain proclivity 
that is managed well when they're with you, but they go home and they're just a tyrant or whatever, or whatever, mm-hmm. the, whatever it is, you know, um, it's, it's all very interesting. Um, and I think to me, it's like a living practical illustration of the difference between psychoanalysis and Christian morality. You know, it's like, you know, morality informs, you know, in one way and psychoanalysis informs another, but let's move on here. <laughs> In the view of a person's raw psychological material, why are Christians told not to judge? Can I just tell you how happy this whole section of this chapter made me? Because, and and also confused, because here's this amazing person, C.S. Lewis. Right. That amazing person. Writing this, and yet, I'll get to what I'm talking about, but... He wrote this brilliant, brilliant passage here, and yet, in 2019, we still, as a society, have a problem doing this, and it's like, I just don't understand. But he says that people with crummy psychological stuff going on are not sinners, they have a disease. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the most duh things ever, but our society cannot get around it because it's an invisible illness. Well, and he's just way ahead of his time. I mean, (laughs) what he was saying would have been very controversial at the time that he said it. Yeah, but unfortunately it's still kind of controversial. We can't get people's heads around the fact that because you can't see it doesn't mean that it's not still a disease that's worth... Well, I'd like you to think back on something that you heard your old man say years ago, and I continue to say this when appropriate. But when I was confronted as a pastor with the suicide Mm -hmm. and had to care for a family and preach a Christian funeral service, there was a great deal of anxiety because this family was afraid that I would condemn their loved one Mm -hmm. and that I, and I surprised everybody, but not myself. And I'm not boasting. I'm saying I knew in my heart how I felt about this, but I'd never made a public statement in a setting where it had such a profound effect. Mm -hmm. But when I stood up and I said to this family, look, the church has failed miserably those people whose loved ones have committed suicide and the fact is is i don't believe god is any more willing to condemn a person who dies of suicide as he is to condemn a person who dies of cancer both are the results of sickness and in my opinion there are very 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 infinitesimally few cases where suicide might not meet with God's approval and I'm not sure that's the way I mean that but it, it, it there would but, the kind of condemning of suicide that people think leads you to hell is probably a human invention because I believe that if there is a reason that God would be you know, condemn you for committing suicide, it might have something to do with your moral condition and not your psychological condition. Well, and he says, I think, perfectly dovetailing that, he says, humans judge actions, God judges moral choice. Right. And and I think If there's an, uh, if there's a, 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 uh, a, a, 
an oppose I'm trying I don't know I can't find my word if if someone commits suicide because their moral condition you know has informed them that that they should do so and you know and all then God might judge that but the vast majority virtually everyone I know who who was ever a victim of suicide whether the person who died or the loved ones who had to live after that it's always been evident that there was something wrong yeah you know that there was sickness so so i always say to people that as far as i'm concerned we'll let god just sort that out mm-hmm. but this church and this pastor is not going to condemn the fact and, and and honestly i've even had more frequently than that uh people that have become dear to me in the churches who will say i don't think i can beat this cancer anymore is it wrong for me to give up is it a sin for me to give up i've i've I sat with people mm-hmm. hours and days before their death where they asked me that question like i know the answer to it and yeah. all i could say was is you know i don't think god's going to condemn you because the disease finally got you <laughs> and you know it's what's in your heart it's your devotion to god that is going to be the the main mm-hmm. thing you know yeah so anyway i feel like i'm you know we haven't we haven't strayed this far well i don't think we're straying so the raw psychological material is the thing that we can't really quantify Mm -hmm. and and i don't really i i don't mean this in a disrespectful way but i think the whole science of psychology is has two as way many variables in it that that there are certain things that you can sort of empirically measure and um the way i would put that is is that in my career i have known a handful of alcoholics and they're surprisingly consistent in the way that they behave Mm -hmm. that there are certain things they say certain things they do certain outcomes that come in the same order even though these alcoholics are coming from different backgrounds, different communities and everything else. So there are aspects of psychology and mental and emotional Mm -hmm. illness that are pretty consistent and they can be quantified. But on the other end of the spectrum is all kinds of unknown, immeasurable behavior, you know, that, that, and, and I hesitate to use this example, but some of the most notorious uh serial killers who have been captured have been people that were completely calm and cool and very smooth and and you know so so if you could have put someone under analysis who was doing these things but no one knew there's not there isn't necessarily a test you can perform that would would indicate that you know i I, that's what i guess i'm trying to say is it is psychological science science of psychology is i think limited in my opinion yeah you know i think i'm not going to tear apart your serial killer example but i think that it is limited because the mind is too vast Right. But, but I think, like, it goes back to what he's saying about raw material versus morality. There's plenty we can do with the raw material. There's a really fascinating story in scripture 
that I have often thought about and wondered how it would be interpreted if the same circumstances happened in 2019, let's say, or the last time I thought about it. Jesus and the guys go across to um, the lake to a place where Gentiles live, mm-hmm. and there is a man herding pigs, mm-hmm. and there's also this cemetery where this crazy man lives, mm-hmm. where everybody's terrified of him, and he's half naked, and they, they put chains on him, but he's broken free, and Jesus approaches this guy, and uh I think, I can't remember the exact wording, but, you know, he basically says, you know, I know what's really going on here. And the demons inside him say, we know who you are. We are legion and we know who you Mm -hmm. are. Don't cast us out into the abyss. Cast us into that herd of pigs. And so Jesus does. Mm -hmm. And the man is healed. Mm -hmm. Well, all right. Let's just take the story as it is written and... Imagine in our society how people would respond if the guy said he had demons inside him. If a voice that didn't sound like him but was him speaking, you know, because sometimes people do that, you know, they, they don't speak in their natural speaking voice, but they're saying crazy wild things. So, so you know, what, how, would a, how would modern analysis look at him? They, they'd have to say that he was certifiable. Schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. You know, and yet Jesus saw him as a human being whose psychological condition, whether demon imposed or not. I mean, like like the big question we can't answer is, is, is if Jesus were here today in 2019 looking at a person like that, would he say this is a psychological problem that only God can heal, or would he say this person's full of demons? You know, because I don't personally believe that there are not demons mm-hmm. who possess people, mm-hmm. nor do I believe that every story in the Bible that refers to someone being demon possessed is that. In other words, I think some of the stories, the person's behavior, like the the boy who kept throwing himself, he would go into fits and throw himself into the fire, and they yeah. said it was a demon. Well, I, I don't know. It sounds like epilepsy to me. You know, it sounds like somebody yeah. is attacked, you know, certain certain, certain circumstances. I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but, no, I think but there's plenty of if he's looking at a fire, the flickering of the fire could trigger his epileptic response and he could end up flinging himself into the fire. I think there's lots of examples in the Bible of disorders. You know, things we have names for now. disorders. Physical health, maladies, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm not saying that that negates anything Jesus has done. Because the fact is, is Jesus, it, cause, because miracles in the Bible are always about timing anyway. Mm-hmm. The fact is, is Jesus approaches this man in the cemetery and he says, okay, it's time for you to be well. And the guy's well. You know, everybody else who's tried to help him has just settled for chaining him up and keeping him as far away from people as they can keep him. Well, and this might sound kind of funny, but I'll just go ahead and say it. Jesus, like, he, he's... He possesses all knowledge, yeah. past, present, future. So he may have easily recognized this guy yeah. has schizophrenia or this guy 
is yeah. a sociopath. You know, like, He whatever. could be thinking someday they're going to call this right. that. But, but he's not going to say it in his context right then because then he sounds kind of crazy. And, yeah. Which sounds funny, I know, but, like, he he's going to say... So if, he, if it happened now, he might come up and say, this person has a psychological problem. Here's what we need to do to help them. Or here's what I'm going to do, you know, and still heal them. But, but you know, he knows everything. And he know like, and, and he may have a totally different name for what's, you know, as far as he's concerned, maybe it's just the fact that this is a fallen world and, you know. So we have quite adequately, and I'm not joking here, we've really explored the whole idea that C.S. Lewis wants us to understand, which is God sees the raw material Mm -hmm. and the condition it's in, and God evaluates the morality of that person's decisions, balancing it against the raw material. Yeah, and I I liked the examples that like the way he he speculated about this and i really liked it because he said like if a guy if a man who has basically been it's the whole nature and nurture thing if a man has been taught his whole life to be cruel to be hurtful hateful mean whatever Mm -hmm. and does something kind that's in opposition to what he's been taught and is even mocked by people for it his peer group or whatever god might look upon that as more courageous than if one of like someone healthy was to die for a friend sure sure because he he's looking at it the way you just described balanced you know god is entirely and perfectly fair yeah. and balanced. Well, and it's always... <laughs> I mean, I I see this... Fox says they're doing it, but God really does. Okay, true that. <laughs> I see this with kids, though, like... And by the way, don't anybody out there think that that means that I'm some sort of raving liberal. <laughs> I just mock the slogan. Um, you can... I think you can see this, whether you have kids, work with kids, whatever. Um... I'm going to be way more excited for a kid who keeps making mistakes and then suddenly a light clicks on and they do something really awesome. I'm going to be way more excited about that than my kid who gets all A's all the time, sure. always does the right thing. Not that I'm not going to encourage that kid too, but but that, but this, you know, the kid that is making the mistakes that finally does something awesome. Yeah. It's it's that raw material versus moral choice the kid is you know the kid's coming from a really difficult place but chose to do something awesome well it sort of goes back to what i was saying about the difference between training and changing Mm -hmm. what you're describing is someone who's actually changing yeah which is something really remarkable to celebrate right because that is far more uncommon Mm -hmm. you know that's I mean, really, when you think about it, even the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious authorities that Jesus went round and round with, most of them are a result of conditioning. Most of them behave the way they do because they're rewarded for behaving the way they do. Mm -hmm. And so we're not doing things because we've had our fundamental moral base shifted. 
we're doing things because we've been conditioned to do them. Um, and, and so, you know, because I've often thought about that. We have a lot of Amish people around us and variations of the Amish and Mennonite traditions. And, and it's interesting to me because you think, well, after generations and generations, people continue to perpetuate this. And why? Well, it has an awful lot to do with the fact that their, their view of the world is very limited. And so this all seems very normal to them. Mm-hmm. And the part where they interact with the world and see people in cars and, and modern, you know, uh, conveniences is still limited because it's limited you know like there's a community near here that that i'm fond of where some old order amish people live that it really really it feels like you're going back in time there because they're not compromising in any particular way that i can see Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because it means that when they're around the people in the town uh perhaps the town square selling their their produce or something the kids grow up seeing how they interact with that, but that's still limited. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so much of what we do is conditioning. And for someone to make a ch- really profound choice and to really step outside, you know, I mean, it's Abraham leaving his home and Ur the Chaldees and, and coming to a whole new land to follow a God that, you know, basically he just answered the phone when it was ringing and, God said, good, I'm yeah. glad you answered, because on you I will build a whole new world. Mm-hmm. You know, that, it's that one who said, I'm willing to take a chance on doing something that's completely outside of what I know is normal. Yeah. Okay, we better get moving. <laughs> so, so... Uh, I knew as soon as I read that this was psychoanalysis, I knew it was going to be a longer one. So where does most of a person's raw psychological material reside and what will happen after he dies? Well, so he talks about the raw material as being, like, related to your body, and your body's going to decay. And that's all going to fall away, and that that choice Mm -hmm. is what's left. Mm-hmm. All, well, the sum of all of the choices that you've made mm-hmm. um, is what's going to be left. And that, that is really beautiful when you think about it. You know, that, that there's a certain part of you that is eternal. And there are certain decisions you make and certain, um, you know, a certain amount of the light that you embrace that is transcendent Mm -hmm. like your soul Mm -hmm. but then there's other parts of you that have everything to do with the wiring you know um we just had a funeral last week of a friend from a previous church and the man he was after stroke after stroke after stroke was still the same soul but the body was shutting down and the brain was no longer giving him the ability to communicate or to Mm -hmm. function in the way that he once did And so you say, well, you know, the real person's in there, you know, but so what that tells me is, is that somebody who suffers a traumatic brain injury is feeling a physical impact of what's happened, but it doesn't impact. I mean, I guess we could take your brother and sister with spina bifida. Their souls are far reaching even if their bodies are limited. Mm-hmm. And so one day when we're in paradise with them, we're going to see them as they really are. 
and there will be no limitations and and those souls will be free mm-hmm. of the the burden of a body that has weighted down with extra limitations mm-hmm. you know and the same could be said of a mind that's weighted down with limitations mm-hmm. which is in both of those cases in their cases both it's physical and mental um so yeah it's profound stuff so Every choice we make, not every rule we keep, is turning the central part of who we are, is is tuning the central part yeah. of who we are, really, the part that that part that chooses. So it's uh, it's turning us into something a little different. So yeah, he says we're evolving toward either heavenly or hellish creatures. Yeah, and this is where one of my favorite books of his. Um, well, I mean, I like them all, but a book that I like that a lot of people I know who have tried it didn't like it as much. Um, and that's the the one, um, uh, The Great Divorce. Mm. Now, I really like The Great Divorce, mm-hmm. I but I think, I think a lot of people have difficulty with it. And it's probably because, number one, you need to be more schooled in C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And number two, I think, and I don't mean this in any way to be condescending, but you also have to have a pretty decent knowledge of Scripture. Because what he's trying to do is give you a parallel and... You have to have a pretty flexible imagination. Yeah, but basically what he's describing is people whose souls soar after they die and whose souls diminish after they die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, because, because, you know... Yeah. And... uh, well, that's what he says is like the heavenly creatures are in harmony with God. Whereas if you're evolving the other direction, you're at war with God. You're, you're constantly fighting. Yeah. So. Yeah. Heard some great stuff today that can't go into this podcast yet, but I got to tell you, it's, it's really, really fueling me. <laughs> um, so, so beyond peace, what does... Lewis say a person obtains when their moral cho- choices are moving them in the right direction. I think you already kind of alluded to it, but Oh, well yeah, he talks about and I really liked it. He talks about how like it's just another brilliant Lewis thing cuz he says like you gain knowledge by moving in the right direction, which is why you can't judge and be hateful towards somebody who's so-called bad because they don't even know that they're moving in the wrong direction because they haven't acquired that knowledge which makes it really hard but like he says that someone who is improving and growing better because of their moral choice also gains the knowledge to know that there's still evil left in him that needs to be improved upon Mm -hmm. but somebody who's bad so-called bad as far as morality doesn't have that knowledge so they don't realize that what they're doing is wrong so they actually get worse and worse because they don't you know what i just realized that this is this is what he says back in chapter um two Mm -hmm. about the perfect penitent it's the same thing he's saying that the person who needs repentance the most is the least likely to do it and the person who is the most willing to repent you know is 
keenly aware that they can't that do they it. Can't, yeah. You know, which is basically what you just said. Yeah, that, and that's he gives some good examples. He says like you you don't understand sleep while you're sleeping. You understand sleep when you're awake. Yeah. You don't understand that you're you don't understand your drunkenness until you're sober. Yeah. And so he ends with just you know another perfect nugget because he says good people know about good and evil bad people don't know about it either you know so they're stuck last week i was thinking quite a bit about how to respond to someone i know who's really politically driven mm-hmm. and in many respects very humanistic mm-hmm and I was afraid of a conversation that thankfully never came. But I thought about it and I realized that, and, and, and this is, I believe, my own way of illustrating the very thing that you just described, mm-hmm. that we both described. When you, when you increase in personal holiness, you increase in knowledge and your knowledge informs you how unholy you really are. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so what I realized was, is the best thing I could say to this person is, is I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a liberal, and I'm not a conservative. I am a Christian saved by God's grace. I'm a sinner who has no hope of favor with God beyond that which Jesus gets for me. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the only thing I could do to diffuse this discussion that I didn't want to have about politics was to say that I don't think in those terms. I'm simply a sinner saved by God's grace. And that was going to be my answer to the questions and the controversial discussions that I didn't want to have. And what was really remarkable is, is they never came, but I left that feeling as though I have been empowered in a way by that decision because I realized that that's really the simplest test that you can you know when we put the when we put the 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 you know ph paper in the hot tub we look at the color and it tells us the condition and i realized the simple test that you can do not to judge other christians but to simply find out whether you're talking to someone who shares your spiritual maturity i guess Mm -hmm. is to say you know i'm a hopeless wretch it's why like like in modern versions of amazing grace some have taken out the word wretch save a wretch like me but i think to do that is to miss the principal point that newton wants you to understand is it's amazing grace that saves a wretch Mm -hmm. like me and anybody who can sing that with genuineness is very devout indeed because that's a person who understands not in a self-deprecating way. It's not putting yourself down. It's saying that the more I know about God's grace and love, the more I realize how unworthy I am of it. Right. And, and how far I still have to go. Yeah, exactly. And it only makes you strive harder. It doesn't make you give up and say, well, I'm just a lost cause. Because that's basically the guy who says, well, I'd rather have fun in hell than, you know, sit around in heaven plucking a harp with a bunch of losers. Right. Um, hell's not going to be fun. No. <laughs> There's nothing fun about hell. And, you know, uh, it's just not. And people who really don't understand how much trouble they're in make remarks like that. Mm-hmm. And I very I fear very much for them. Mm-hmm. 
And another version of that is people who are more concerned about your political motivations than your spiritual motivations and who, you know, want to use religion, as C.S. Lewis described in Chapter 3, as a platform for a political agenda. Yeah. You know, and that, that concerns me terribly. Well, okay, this is pretty uh, pretty awesome. Uh, the last thing I guess I want to share is, is that Proverbs 4, verses 18 and 19 says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, and that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Mm -hmm. And the way of the wicked is like the darkness, and they do not know over what they stumble. So some are walking towards the night, and some are walking towards the light or the day. Mm -hmm. Um, Walking out of the darkness into the rising sun and the dawning of the new day, or you're walking out of the dimness into total darkness and tripping over things you don't even know yeah so this has been a good one this one this one has been you know more expansive than we've done for several episodes but okay because uh, he went he went psychology yeah well you know and <laughs> and sometimes i think we're just in a different mood when we come in here to do oh, this yeah definitely so I want to thank you all for listening. We're deeply honored that this is of value to you and that you keep coming back for more. We are humbled by that. We are your fellow sinners saved by God's grace. And we claim no particular authority to do what we're doing, only that God seems to be pleased with the aroma of our offering. And so take that as you will and uh, come back for the next episode. Um, If you have comments, we'd love to hear them. If you want to write to us on the Facebook page and um, Facebook group, Knowing God with Heart and Mind, we'll see you there. You can email us as always. You can learn more about me and Shiloh United Methodist by visiting shilohum.org. That's S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M dot org. For now, we'll just say God bless you and goodbye. Bye.